If you're listening to this podcast, it's because you're interested in Iceland. Or maybe you're planning a trip, and you probably have questions. Lots of questions. Circa's new concierge feature, which is now open in Iceland, will change how you travel. You can connect with us directly through the Circa app, and we'll put you in touch with your very own local concierge in the land of fire and ice to ask any questions you have. No matter when you're traveling, let us help make your trip one to remember. For a limited time only, the Circa Concierge is completely free. So download the Circa app from the iOS store and connect with us. You've got questions, we've got answers. Circa, love the world you live in and we'll help you explore it. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to Circa. In this green energy episode, you'll hear a fascinating and often missed story of the energy forces that have shaped Iceland and the people involved. We are going to tell you about a lot of places you can see here that will bring these stories to life. But don't worry, there will be maps, notes and info on the places mentioned in these guides in the Circa app. So, just sit back and put your headphones on. This is an electrified story from Iceland. Circa, love the world you live in, and we'll help you explore it. The story of Green Iceland is legend the world over. Nearly 100% of the energy produced in this country is renewable. Geothermal, hydroelectric and wind. Roaring glacial rivers, active volcanoes. These also give us more swimming pools per capita than any other country. Flip a switch and on comes green energy, illuminating one of the richest and happiest nations in the world. Apartments are warm and electric bills are low. It's a story about innovation and the wonders of Iceland's nature, and it's true. But the Icelandic energy story is not so simple, nor so straightforward. Iceland's renewable energy, for all the bountiful blessings it has offered the nation, is also a flammable topic that has divided public opinion for more than a century. It pitted environmentalism against capitalism. It's Bitcoin versus aluminum smelters. It's radical activism and eco-terrorism. Farmers with dynamite and poets with dreams. I'm going to tell you this story by telling you the story of three well-known writers, poets, skáld as we like to call them. They each fought for their vision of Iceland's energy revolution. The first, Einar Ben, the grand poet of a poor colonial nation, a titan of industrial ideas and brilliant businessman. The second, Haltor Laxnes, the Nobel Prize poet and the national treasure of a newly independent nation, 
a firm believer in socialism, who toured the Soviet Union. And the third, Andrisnar Magnason, an idea maker and a believer in alternative realities. A writer of books that changed the perception of the younger generation, this is the story of Iceland's Green Revolution. Kilo, Mega, Giga, and Terra. 99.99% of Iceland's energy production is renewable energy. It accounts for 85% of the total energy needs of the nation. To be clear, Iceland is way ahead of the curve here. This number dwarfs almost every other nation for percentage of clean energy production. It's a much hyped success story. We produce more energy per capita than any other country in the world. Nine times more than the EU average. And for our size, we're currently producing more than any nation in the world. But Iceland's 370,000 inhabitants won't be fueling the world economy anytime soon. The US still produces 15 times more renewable terawatts of energy and China over 50 times more. What Iceland can do is innovative. The Iceland landscape can be famously inhospitable. Energy produced by nature creates an extraordinary and dangerous environment. Sitting here in the middle of the North Atlantic Ocean means it has three things in abundance. Volcanoes, water and wind, which translates to www.lotsofenergy.com This land is sat on top of a volcanic hotspot and is split in half by the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, so we have a lot of earthquakes and a lot of eruptions. There are over 130 volcanoes and large areas of fissures, but if there's nothing active when you're here, check out Reykjanes Peninsula, the volcanic crater Eldborg, and Myrdalsjökull with its massive, massive volcanic floodplains. These are some of the most stunning volcanic landscapes on the island. Don't worry, I'll put these in the notes for you. And of course, volcanoes are important because this activity is the foundation for geothermal energy and all the nice warm stuff like our swimming pools and natural hot springs. Our abundance of water, on the other hand, comes from the warm, moist air, a trademark of the common southeastern low-pressure systems that pass over Iceland. The snow falling on high mountains is what forms and maintains the country's glaciers, which store about 815 cubic miles of ice. Rivers of water flowing from the glaciers enable Iceland's massive hydroelectric energy sector. For most of the last 100 years, the largest eco-conflicts in Iceland have centered around hydroelectric power. The amount of power produced by hydro and geothermal energy sources is so much higher and cheaper than wind power that only a handful of wind turbines can be found, even though this is one of the windiest places on Earth. But with growing demand for renewable energy, this will change in the near future. The area to visit to see these epic wind turbines and multiple hydroelectric dams is Thjorsardalur, a two-hour drive from Reykjavik it's all too often overlooked, but here 
you can view untouched nature and the massive engineering of hydro and wind power. Going from the forested waterfall area of Gjallp to the man-made lagoons around Hrønær, it's a bit like a journey out of Lord of the Rings. It's also the gateway to the amazing, forbidding, and breathtaking highlands. But it's most important, if you want to really understand the Icelandic people, to understand the context behind these places, to appreciate the dichotomy that we see all around us. Sometimes, a dam is not simply a dam. To explore the history and tumult of Iceland's Green Revolution, we need to begin a long time ago. Before the arrival of Einar Ben, an Icelandic titan. For a thousand years, from the first Viking settlers to the dawn of the Energy Age, Icelanders endured brutally harsh and unpredictable winters with rather limited options for creating warmth. Here's what survival looked like back then. One, cut down all the native birch trees that covered the land from ocean to mountain, burn them and stay warm. Two, Build turf houses with tiny windows for maximum insulation. Three, don't bother with vegetables. Eat dried fish, including plucking every last piece of meat from fish heads. Eat skir from dairy and smoked lamb. The cold, stormy weather will burn calories faster than anyone can even begin to worry about gaining weight. Four, wear wool. Then add more wool. And then a few more layers of wool. If you think you've got nothing to do on long, dark winter days, you're wrong. Knitting was a national obsession for a very good reason. 5. When all the trees are gone, burn animal shit and peat to make life bearable. It creates more heat than you might think. For close to a thousand years, Icelanders did their best to stay warm while facing the hardships of volcanic eruptions and bad weather, just to name a few. But the poorest nation in Europe survived and adapted. At the end of the 19th century, visitors began to venture to Iceland. The country was ever so slowly being awakened to new ideas and technologies. The nation was still among the least wealthy in Europe and under foreign rule. But the winds of nationalism were pushing for independence and self-reliance. Most people still lived on farms scattered around the country, but the modernization of the country's fishing fleet would soon bring people to the growing seaside towns. And this is where the energy revolution began. Imagine Reykjavik in 1894, a tiny city by the sea with just under 7,000 inhabitants. It was little more than a village with old dirt trails connecting the tiny turf, stone or wooden houses together. The first concrete house was still three years away. There was a cathedral, built in 1787, and the Grand Parliament building built in 1881. Foreign merchants, fishermen and occasional travelers gave it a somewhat worldly feel, even if the place was decades, if not centuries, behind most of Europe. It would have been a very dark place when daylight lasted less than three hours during the deep winter months. Imported coal and kerosene made a huge difference in the small city, but street lighting was still 
a distant dream. People navigated the dark streets by moonlight. Whales, seals, and shark oil lit the lamps indoors. But some imagined the warmer, brighter future was possible, and closer than anyone realized. Freeman Einarsson was neither a poet nor writer, but a science-minded dreamer. He was in a rather bad state when his compatriots took pity on him in Copenhagen, but they also knew he had something special to offer Iceland. So they paid for his fare back. He had studied in Canada, worked with Thomas Edison, and had a head full of grand ideas. One was a detailed plan of how to neutralize every volcano on Earth by drilling into them. I'll let that sink in for a moment. A more manageable task was to use the local river Etlilau to generate hydroelectric energy for the growing town of Reykjavik. He presented a detailed and reasonable plan, but got little interest. Imported gas was chosen because it was cheaper. The scenic forested valley of Etlilardalur contains the dam and power station that were built long after Freeman had presented the progressive idea. The valley is an enclave of nature, a mere 10-minute drive from downtown. Ground zero for anyone interested in the story of Iceland's energy. Soon after Freeman presented his novel Energy Ideas, Johannes Reikdal, living in nearby Hapnafjörður, had a similar idea, but a very different plan. He would simply build a hydroelectric power station himself. He once asked a wealthy friend for a loan of a hundred Icelandic kroners to get started. This was a lot of money for the time, and when he repaid it within a year, the lender asked if he had abandoned the project. Johannes simply answered no. I'm halfway there. In 1904, he turned on the first hydroelectric station in Iceland that would provide electricity to the local population. The man who lent him the money was Einar Ben. Our first eco-poet. At the start of the 20th century, Einar Ben was a busy man. He sailed eight times between Iceland and Scotland in nine months. He was a force of nature. One of those people that seemed to arrive fully formed. Einar Benetusson was born in 1864 on a farm by the lake Adlilavat, a 50-minute drive from downtown Reykjavik. His father was a politician and later a judge at the high court. He was said to be the most eloquent speaker to ever have sat in parliament, but politics and drinking led to the end of his local career and his marriage. He was a man with grand ideas and an infamously strong will. Eina's mother was equally strong-willed. She too had poetry flowing through her. Einar's youth was unstable due to the family situation, but he did have the rare privilege of an education. In 1892, after eight long years of studying law, with moderate attention and partying in Copenhagen, he returned to Iceland with a degree. He worked as his father's assistant, a northern county official, but quickly his ambition grew and he moved to Reykjavik. Although his mediocre grades limited his choices as a lawyer, he became one of the first real estate agents in Iceland. He was also the editor of a magazine, he translated foreign plays, he got married and then wrote poems that captivated the nation. 
Iceland is an extremely rich country when it comes to literature and poetry, a heritage reaching back to the 13th century. Poetry at the turn of the 20th century was a language in its own right and a way to make sense of life. It was the Twitter of the times, except it was poems, long poems. Einar soon became one of the poets that influenced how the nation viewed society. He had a very clear idea of exactly where Iceland should be heading. And to make that happen, he moved his family to Edinburgh in 1907. Einar Ben planned to be at the center of an international business deal that would bring Iceland out of poverty and into great riches, with him as middleman, the deal of all deals. He saw Iceland for what it was, a poor nation under colonial rule by Denmark, but extremely rich in resources. The massive glacier rivers had flowed freely since the last ice age ended 10,000 years ago. If their energy could finally be harnessed, it would change the country. The Norwegians had already developed their own hydroelectric industry, damming every river that could be bought. The energy fueled heavy industry built downstream. The money mostly came from abroad, but a wealthy class of engineers and local businessmen emerged. Einar Ben's plan was to buy the water rights to some of the largest rivers in Iceland, including the mighty Thjórsám, Jökulsáfjöllum and Kvítá. With Norwegian investments and a partnership with local businessmen, Einar Ben rode between farms along the big rivers and convinced farmers to sell. He had written a well-known poem a few years earlier, in which he describes the majestic raw power of the waterfall Tettifos, east of Lake Mivat, with a mystical tone. In it, he asks how it could benefit the nation if its power could be drawn as an arrow upon the bow. It's a poem about ideas and spirit conquering nature. When I think of Einar Ben, I think of Hank Reardon from Atlas Shrugged, the writer Sir Walter Scott, Tony Stark as Iron Man, and Charles Bukowski, all molded into one complicated but larger-than-life character. He had designed the first national flag of Iceland and convinced the International Olympic Committee to let Iceland, a colony of Denmark, compete as a free nation under its own flag. He owned property and farms all around Iceland, which he would cash in or trade at the profit when needed. He lived and traveled in luxury and spent accordingly. He could convince most people of anything, spin dreams of gold and yarn, and was considered the greatest living poet. But opposition to Einar Ben's audacious plan came, perhaps predictably, in the form of a poem. A fellow poet... Thorsten Erlingsson wrote about the same waterfall. In his poem, he sees raw nature as something that enriches the human spirit and should be left untouched. His poem lays the foundation of Icelandic environmentalism, but does little to slow down Einar Pén. He had made no secret of his dreams to modernize, industrialize and electrify the nation, but the speed at which he bought water rights would soon bring him unwanted attention. Following the so-called panic laws in Norway, which aimed to counter the control of foreign investors in hydroelectric and heavy industry, and in the wake of Einar Ben's buying spree, an Icelandic law was passed to limit foreign ownership. It limited ownership to those living in Iceland, which put the Edinburgh-based poet in a predicament. But he did not stop buying, because, of course, he was also a lawyer and 
such minute details would not stand in his way. In 1908, British investors joined Einar's venture and he bought the water rights to one of Iceland's most iconic waterfalls, Kodafoss, from local farmers eager to get cash for an unused resource. The spending created a sort of gold rush in the countryside. Land prices were imagined to be a fraction of what the land was actually worth, once you imagined the power plant and factories that would get built. At this point, the nation was fast changing. Motorboats were revolutionizing the fishing industry, and gas had become the chosen source for energy in Reykjavik. Towns grew along with the fishing industry, and the call for independence from Iceland's colonial rulers, now in Denmark, grew louder. So Einar Ben was not alone in his vision of radical economic change. But when it came to large-scale electrical production and heavy industry to follow, he was a revolutionary. But after a long line of events that belong in a movie, including teaming up with a radical spiritist preacher from London, the most ambitious plan in Iceland's history had not even begun. A fortune had been secured from investors in Norway and England. Plans and drawings had been made for building dams, roads, and Iceland's first railroad. Aluminum explosives and fertilizer factories would spring up to use the energy created by Einar Ben's grand vision. But the deal was not to be. After 13 years, the city of Reykjavik would harness the power of its local river Etlilau, a tiny undertaking compared to what Einar had in mind. It was partly politics, influenced by national fears of foreign ownership and immigration, that kept the deal of the century hanging in an ever-tightening noose. Years went by. In 1936, the government of Iceland began building the first large-scale hydroelectric power plant downstream from the lake Þingvallavatn to the east of Reykjavik. It met the fast-growing demand for energy in the capital city, but was still much smaller than the plan Einar Ben had in mind. Einar Ben would go on to pursue a variety of ventures throughout the years, and he was among the richest men in the country for a while. But it was alcohol that would mark the last chapter of his life. He spent his last years living in a small cabin at the edge of the ocean in a place called Hertisavik. Doctors prescribed a daily dose of alcohol to keep him from serious withdrawal, supplied by a local bootlegger, as prohibition was in effect. Einar Ben died in 1940. There were strange times ahead. Hi, everyone. Circa's recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Haldor Laxness 
and the war against nature. When World War II broke out, over 40,000 foreign soldiers, mostly British and Americans, occupied the country of 120,000 people, and Icelandic men were furious over the effects it had on the local women. But the war also brought Iceland an economic boom, providing jobs and generous payouts from the Marshall Plan. The ultimate prize was independence from Denmark in 1944. A building boom followed and Reykjavik finally began to feel like a modern city. Icelandic society was quickly outgrowing its limited energy infrastructure. In 1969, the dreams of Einar Ben became reality when the power station at Burfels Virkjun began producing 105 megawatts of electricity. This amount doubled within two years. It resulted in guaranteed energy for homes and industry in Reykjavik, which was a fast-growing modern city. The project had called for the creation of a national energy company named Landsvirkjun. Thousands of local workers and engineers foreign loans. The nation went from a few dozen megawatts to hundreds, guaranteeing energy and quality of life for most Icelanders into the foreseeable future. But all of this was dependent on a massive buyer and consumer for all this energy. Something much larger than the average Icelandic home bringing in a washing machine. And just as Einar Ben had planned, Iceland began its love affair with heavy industry. When driving from the Keplavik airport to Reykjavik, you pass a long green factory by the sea, at the edge of the city. There are no signs, just a big electric line cutting across the barren lava field on the right, passing over the road and into the premises of the Rio Tinto aluminum smelter. In 1970, the energy revolution was gaining momentum with plans to dam more rivers for more energy, for more aluminium smelters. This was a time of fast economic development, a crash course in nation building and becoming urban. On the last day of 1970, Nobel Prize poet Haldur Kiljan Laxness, then 68 years old, joined the long and ongoing fight about energy politics with an essay titled The War Against the Land. To say that it was critical of Iceland's energy plans would be a gross understatement. Haldur Kilian Laxness was a writer who spoke his mind and did things his way. He was able to get his books published and accepted without editing the grammatical errors he felt were correct. It says a lot. From an early age, his plan was to be a writer. And aside from a year working at the reception of the Icelandic Broadcasting Corporation, he succeeded. When given the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1955, he was already Iceland's most well-known author. He had traveled widely in search of stories and characters, which would appear in many of his iconic works, including poor remote farmers at a time when rural living was giving way to urbanization. Books like Independent People captured the past, the future, and those stuck in between. Although his stories were set in Iceland, his search for experiences and knowledge led him far from its shores. One of his novels, The Great Weaver from Kashmir, was written in Taormina, in Sicily. But it was his travels to the Soviet Union in the 40s that had the largest impact on his personal views and his future actions. 
Haldor Laxness was a strong socialist supporter, and he wanted to understand the dawn of a new society in which equality conquered the ills of capitalism. He was a social realist in his writings and sought to better the world for the common man, the underprivileged. Yet he had grown wealthy from book sales, and he lived the privileged life off those proceeds. His lifelong residence at Kljúvrastet is now a museum in the countryside on the edge of Reykjavik. There you can see a small but luxurious villa, including a swimming pool and a Bentley. In 1970, he wrote what he saw as the truth about Iceland's hydroelectric industry. It begins with an attack on what was and is seen by many Icelanders as holy. He traces the destruction of the Icelandic nature back to settlement times, the cutting of native forests, but above all, the Icelandic sheep farming, responsible for a thousand years of soil erosion. Then comes the draining of the wetlands by farmers with government support, an attack on the lungs of the land. But the war on the land he saw brewing was that of hydroelectric dams to power an army of aluminium smelters in Iceland, an industry that was said to be the only way for Icelanders to live decent lives was for him a deceit. Smelters needed fewer workers than many of the smaller local industries, at the cost of some of the most unique landscapes in the country. Powering this terrible deal for the country, he felt, was the Icelandic energy agency Orkustopnun. The eyes of the nation were on Laxárdalur, Salmon Valley, in the northern region of Iceland. Haldur Laxnes in his poetic style, had written a description of the landscape at risk from a proposed dam. He drew on art, science, history, nature, and the bond local farmers had to the land. The fight, he posited, was greed and short-sightedness, which had already proved devastating to the nearby Lake Mivat when a silica factory was erected to mine the bottom of the lake. His words were not the first defense for the land under siege. On August 25, 1970, local farmers gathered on a mild summer evening and carried out Iceland's first and only act of eco-terrorism. 160 people were present when three men blew up the Midkvistl Dam on the edge of Lake Miva with dynamite. In an effort to present a united front, many more than the three took responsibility, and in the end, 69 people were charged. No one served prison time, as the whole situation had become a political powder keg. The conundrum of Iceland's energy production since the first big hydropower plant has always been the fact that if you remove the aluminum industry from the equation, the whole nation uses only around 20% of the energy produced. But the low energy bills and plenty of hot water produced by hydroelectricity and geothermal energy plants were only possible because of the growth of heavy industry. That was how a small nation could get foreign loans to be able to achieve an economy of scale. But at what price and to what ends are questions that have always been debated in Iceland. Our next poet in this energy story took the views of Halto Laxness and environmentalists to another level. Andrés Nair Magnusson and the Art of Rethinking Energy 
Andri Snær Magnason is a modern-day Renaissance man. As a student of literature in the 90s, he began to develop ideas that were influenced by his knowledge of the Icelandic sagas, history, poetry and art. He brought those ideas into his theatrical art project, a best-selling book of disposable supermarket poems, which presented the poetic journey through the actual aisles of a local supermarket, and a novel, a sci-fi love story, Love Star, where, in the future, love is pre-arranged by technology. He managed to tap into the energy of Iceland's radical and experimental creativity. The results are books full of surprising ideas. Ideas about love, capitalism, literature, and the philosophy of living. The story of the Blue Planet is a modern children's book. When Gleesum Gudei crashes in his rocket ship on the shores of the Blue Planet, it spells the end of freedom and happiness for the small population of two young friends. Promises of endless fun and life-changing novelties begin eroding all that is natural on the Blue Planet. It is a book with a strong ethical message aimed at a generation of parents and children. We'll drop a link in the notes for you. By the way, we always refer to people in Iceland by their first names. Casual social structure, you might say. Andrisnair attacks ruling ideas with new ideas. Questioning the way society operates has become something of a trademark. And so it was that in 2004, he attacked the largest idea ever to have come from the Icelandic energy sector. As of the 1970s, the ideas of Einar Ben had become the Icelandic reality. The Icelandic energy industry was moving full steam ahead. By 2002, there were 28 hydroelectric and six geothermal power stations in Iceland, and three aluminium smelters consumed 80% of the energy. Each new source of energy was developed in connection with an aluminum smelter or some other heavy industry that would be the primary customer. What role did heavy industry play in creating the 50-fold increase in the country's GDP over the last 100 years? The large hydro projects and subsequent heavy industry are the largest investments in Iceland's history. There are jobs, taxes and a stable sale of a lot of energy. Iceland's GDP has increased 50-fold over the last 100 years. The poorest nation in Europe became one of the wealthiest. And now in a country that is subject to fluctuations in global energy prices, the question of how the people of Iceland feel about heavy industry has become a complicated part of the story of green energy. In 2004, a battle of ideas was taking place as the largest dam in Iceland was being built in the east of the country. Politicians presented the Kauranhuka project and a new aluminum smelter in the small town of Reidafjörður as the only way to save the region. Jobs and progress would ease local worries. And the 15 square miles of the highlands that would go underwater, including habitats of geese and reindeers, was in the words of then-finance minister Valgerður Sverrisdóttir, not much to look at anyway. Opinions like these were based on an economic reality, and the plan would benefit the nation's economy. How did those opposed to progress imagine we should live? By picking mountain herbs or walking in sheepskin shoes? This message was promoted loudly, funded by the government and big industry, 
presented in the news, articles, and with the soft power of local influence. The local sports hall in Reyðafjörður was largely funded by Alcoa, an American aluminum company. What right did city folks have to stand in the way of survival in the East Fjords? Andris Nair presented an alternative to what was becoming the status quo of Icelandic economic theory. He offered what was being left out of the conversation. In his book Dreamland, a self-help book for a frightened nation, he spends the first half chipping away, drilling and cutting into the nation's economic tunnel vision. He explores ideas of how things have worked, can work, and could work economically. With dystopian humor, he presents an Iceland that could have been, had it not put a limit to what the American military was allowed to do in Iceland after World War II. Had it chosen instead to become a single industry economy of U.S. military bases, an economy where war means investment, jobs. He points out that instead of seeing the thousand possibilities of an economic future, the prevailing narrative being pushed by government and industry aims to exclude all but one option. His book was an attempt to influence society before it was too late. I read Dreamland while on holiday in Spain. My experience sweating in the sun did not come close to the boiling I felt inside. Reading about the environmental impact of aluminum, bauxite mines in Jamaica, the billions of beer cans in landfills, and Alcoa-produced missile casings was infuriating. Then came the long list of local effects, which none of the smiling ministers of industry, spokespersons, had mentioned before. It felt like a doomsday prediction. Smog, pollution, lost wilderness and a giant crack underneath the Karunjuka Dam itself, which one geologist had warned about. Was I losing my mind? Was the nation losing its mind? Did anyone care? Andersnær might not have surprised those working for the power company, aluminum smelters or the Icelandic ministers themselves, but he did manage to upset me. Here I was, a citizen of the richest nation in the world, having flown to Spain to sunbathe, while the Icelandic government was promising 30 terawatts of clean energy at the lowest prices with minimal environmental red tape so that aluminum companies could make Iceland into smelterland. Had Iceland become the target of economic hitmen, the kind that takes advantage of third world countries? What Andrisnair managed to do, as opposed to Haldor Laxness, was to build a philosophical and economic case against what was happening. Instead of outrage, he presented clear alternatives like tourism, but proposing to let the largest power station in Iceland stand unused as a signal to the world that conservation could be a better alternative was not an easy sell. The area in question, now known as Kaurenhukar, used to be a remote destination for the occasional hiker and hunter, but it is now easily accessible by road 910. It's only an hour's drive from the closest town, Egilstadir, but it's like visiting another universe. It's a place of barren wilderness that has been massively impacted by humans. This is the Hoover Dam of Iceland. 
It's where the questions asked by our three writers belong the most. How much is a landscape worth? What cannon should be sacrificed? Standing at the edge of the huge brown reservoir by the Caronjogardam, these questions feel as real as the concrete under your feet. Was it worth it? There are areas north of the dam, including the stunning Studlagil Canyon, which is an untouched natural wonder. It's an hour's drive from the dam, but make sure the rental car is qualified for the job. You'll need four-wheel drive and proper car insurance to drive the Highland roads marked F. In 2004, the nation was split along the fault lines between economic progress and environmental protection. The issue consumed the country. According to environmentalists, 700 square miles of untouched wilderness was at stake. For the pro-industry opposition, it was the livability of the whole East Fjords, energy security and continued economic growth. Newspapers were full of editorials and columns by both sides. Huge protests against the development of the dam took place, including one with former president Vigdís Finnbótóttir marching in the front. Icelanders circulated pretty landscape photos, poems and writings in opposition to the project. Family gatherings, confirmations and birthdays could become political battlegrounds as tensions in a divided nation escalated. And then there was Saving Iceland, a group of mostly international activists descended on Iceland with the goal of saving it from multinational corporations and from itself. While camping in the highlands, the group disrupted construction by chaining themselves to machines. It was like a few dozen army ants stinging an elephant. In the media, they were presented as foreign radicals with dreadlocks. It would be a lie to say that most Icelanders directly supported them, whatever their views on the dam was. A few years before, Iceland had hosted a large NATO military exercise called Northern Viking. The imaginary enemy was a group of activists turned eco-terrorists planning to blow up a hydroelectric dam. The threat of saving Iceland was little more than a nuisance to the project. In the end, the opposition was easily overpowered. In 2009, 690 megawatts of green renewable energy began flowing from the Karunjukar Dam to feed into the newest aluminum smelter. So, what's the conclusion? Is Iceland morally obligated to power heavy industry like aluminum smelters with its local green energy? Or should the nation take a stand against its largest energy consumer? in favor of nature, and see what happens. With ever more electric cars on top of the growing local demand of homes and small industry, the term energy abundance is long obsolete in Iceland. The arrival of Bitcoin farming in Iceland, currently using more energy than all the Icelandic households combined, is the most recent power-hungry consumer. Iceland's energy story is a story of extremes in both opinions and actions. While generally presented as a green, clean energy producer, it is often overlooked that, per capita, Icelanders have one of the largest consumption-based carbon footprint in the world. Our three writers 
held opposing views that still represent major fault lines when it comes to Iceland's renewable energy. They have each impacted the way people feel and think about the issues related to harnessing energy and protecting the environment. There are still plenty of waterfalls to be admired in Iceland, flowing freely over the edges of cliffs and mountains. The roar of Gutfoss as it dives into its dark gorge below and the mist rising will continue to impress for the foreseeable future. The 50-minute drive up the 844 dirt road still gets you to the strange and beautiful Alterfoss waterfall in the north. Its hexagonal basalt columns surrounding the frothing water like the architecture of trolls. Europe's most powerful waterfall, Dettifoss, of which the poets wrote, still roars and rumbles with the same prehistoric power, and ours drive northeast of Lake Mivat. So, although the focus of this episode has been the hydroelectric power of Iceland, we should not forget the role geothermal energy plays supplying 20% of local renewable energy. Visiting the Reykjanes Peninsula, a short drive west of Reykjavik, is not only a day trip to its lunar landscapes and rugged black ocean cliffs, but a place to view both the natural and man-made aspects of geothermal. At Gunnukver, the geothermal heat billows with a roar, as well as hisses out of the sulfur-rich ground, while a few minutes away the Reykjanesvirkjun power plant taps into the energy 9,000 feet below. The industrial and otherworldly nature make it pure sci-fi territory. We will include links in our notes to all the places that have been mentioned, as well as a list to interesting hydro and geothermal locations, including the unique energy exhibition at Hetlisede Power Plant near Reykjavik. Whatever waterfall or geothermal hot springs you might find yourself admiring in Iceland, it will be a reminder of the complicated relationship the nation has had with these forces of nature, for better or for worse. Thanks for listening to our Iceland Energy Saga episode. Check out the other episodes in this Iceland guide for more on Iceland's unique food, its wild weather, and a story about two murders that rocked this peaceful nation. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or download the Circa app, where you can also get pictures and maps and notes on this episode and more. Maybe you'll want to sample our guides for New York, Hawaii, Mexico City, and many, many more. Circa, love the world you live in, and we'll help you explore it. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.